To the First Unitarian Society of Denver podcast. Thank you for joining us on this journey of the mind, the heart, and the spirit. You may find us on the web at fusden.org or find us on Facebook. This week's selections come from First Unitarian's online service held Sunday, November 29th, 2020. The title is My Journey of Learning and featured our three speakers from the community, David Alley, Julie Myers, and Catherine Wiley. Good morning, First Unitarian Denver. Our call to worship today is uh, going to be words by the Reverend Dr. Rebecca Parker. In the midst of a world marked by tragedy and beauty, there must be those who bear witness against unnecessary destruction and who, with faith, rise and lead in freedom with grace and power. There must be those who speak honestly and do not avoid seeing what must be seen of sorrow and outrage or tenderness and wonder. There must be those whose grief troubles the water while their voices sing and speak refreshed worlds. There must be those whose exuberance rises with lovely energy and articulates earth joys. There must be those who are restless for respectful and loving companionship among human beings, whose presence invites people to be themselves without fear. There must be those who gather with the congregation of remembrance and compassion, who draw water from old wells and walk the simple path of love for neighbor. And there must be communities of people who seek to do justice, who love kindness, and walk humbly with God, who call on the strength of soul force to heal and transform and bless life. There must be religious witness. Amen, and welcome to worship this morning. Our prayer today was written uh, by Nicole Anderson. She did some, I'd call it some riffing, if you will, on the Beatitudes of Jesus. She wrote, Blessed are the homeless and those who beg for spare change, for they will inherit the house of the Lord. Blessed are the black mothers who lament the deaths of their sons at the hands of the state, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, and pansexual individuals who reflect the very image of God, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the undocumented workers whose labors are hard and whose fear of deportation is real every day, for they will produce many fruits to sustain the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the marchers who put their lives on the line, putting their faith in action and demanding mercy for all. They, too, will receive mercy. Blessed are the disenfranchised children 
of Flint, Michigan, and of South Side of Chicago, and the boroughs of New York, and of Aleppo and Syria, of Haiti, of Zimbabwe, Ethiopia, and all of Africa, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, as named by Martin Luther King, Jr., who continue to strive in making his dream a reality, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are our Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, and First Nation siblings, and all other siblings of differing faiths who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who are detained, deported, and unjustly held on account of showing radical love and grace to a world filled with violence and hate, for their reward is great in heaven. Amen to that. First Unitarian, uh, I'm really pleased and excited about this particular Sunday morning service. We're doing things a little bit differently today. I have asked three members of our larger community to reflect with us on their personal journey of learning. Uh, about white supremacy culture, and about themselves, uh, about the world we live in. Uh, so that's, that's going to be the sermon portion of our service today. And uh, I'm here at this moment just to introduce that uh, and to share a brief reading that I hope sets that up um, adequately. So this is by Reverend Yolanda Pierce. She is an Afro-Christian scholar. She calls it a litany for those who aren't ready for healing. Let us not rush to the language of healing before understanding the fullness of the injury and the depth of the wound. Let us not offer false equivalences. Let us not speak of reconciliation without speaking of reparations and restoration or how we can repair the breach and how we can restore the loss. Let us not rush past the loss of this mother's child or this father's child or someone's beloved daughter or son. Let us not value property over people. And let us not protect material objects while human lives hang in the balance. Let us not value a false peace over a righteous justice. And let us not offer cliches to the grieving whose hearts are being torn asunder. Instead, let us mourn black and brown men and women, those killed extrajudicially every 28 hours. Let us lament the loss of a teenager dead at the hands of a police officer who described him as a demon. Let us weep at a criminal justice system that is neither blind nor just. Let us be silent when we don't know what to say. And let us be humble and listen to the pain, rage, and grief pouring from the lips of our neighbors and our friends. Let us pray with our eyes open and our feet planted firmly on the ground. Let us listen to the shattering glass and let us smell the purifying fires, for it is is the language of the unheard. 
God, in your mercy, show me my own complicity in this injustice. Convict me for my indifference. Forgive me when I have remained silent. Equip me with a zeal for righteousness. Never let me grow accustomed or acclimated to unrighteousness. Good morning. Now, more than ever before, I am coming to understand that words about race matter, the ones spoken and the ones not spoken. My dad was a fundamentalist minister. I heard lots of sermons, but race was rarely, if ever, mentioned. My mother's family lived in Texas, and my grandfather's use of the N-word to describe Martin Luther King was ignored. Even on the long ride home, nothing was said about racism or the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Words about race not spoken. My dad's sister did genealogy research and shared family trees that included people who enslaved other people. Their last will and testimonies listed parcels of land and other property, and property for them included people. It was appalling to read, but it was not discussed. I put it in a folder and filed it away. Again, words about race not spoken. My life has been blessed with good education, family, and economic security. However, about three years ago, while still living in Minneapolis, I got a rather firm push from Common Ground Meditation Center to attend a Mindful of Race workshop by Ruth King. I had taught classes there for years, but frankly felt a little put upon to set aside three days for what? Another lecture about affirmative action? Nevertheless, I signed up, and it turned out to be life-changing. Not in a bolt of lightning way, but a gentle, firm pivot. A shift that required talking and words about race that needed to be spoken. The title of Ruth King's book is Mindful of Race, Transforming Racism from the Inside Out. And the active ingredient for me was her strong recommendation to form racial affinity groups. She says, and I quote, There is no shift in consciousness around race without the grit that relating to each other makes possible. In a race awareness group, we put ourselves in intentional spaces with people of the same race, where we can be safe enough to be vulnerable, challenged, and unedited, to examine the stories we have been told and the stories we tell ourselves, to lean forward toward what is familiar and away from what is habitual, and to understand what is difficult to acknowledge, feel, and attend to within us and among us as a racial group, end quote. Wise words about race. Six of us formed an old white guy's race awareness group, and we met monthly for two years. We shared our histories and experiences and gradually came to see more clearly our role in racial harming and healing. We read a lot, meditated together, and we learned how to be more vulnerable and acknowledge our ignorance, shame, and disgrace that accompany 
and accommodate racial inquiry. I had read ta Coates' classic article, The Case for Reparations, in 2014, printed it out, and filed it. I heard his words, but I was not ready to speak. The Race Awareness Group changed that. For the first time, I felt in my body an energy, a sense of duty, a direction toward repair, reparations. Then an odd thing happened. After moving to Denver, I was running in my Capitol Hill neighborhood, and at the corner of 14th and Lafayette, I saw a banner hanging on the wall of a church that said, Black Lives Matter. It was a cool-looking building, and I had heard that Unitarians are an interesting bunch, so I visited and was blown away by the music and, yes, the words that were spoken, words that create action. I was inspired and motivated by Soul to Soul Sisters Workshop, meeting monthly for over a year with a, do a dozen or so of you in a reparation circle. We've challenged and supported each other and studied into action. We've helped establish a reparations affinity group to support the Denver Black Reparations Council led by Harold Fields, someone many of us know and love. The truth about recon reconciliation is that reparations are owed. Finally, words about race are starting to come. But I'm looking for some new words about race that will speak to 58% of white America who voted for a man who speaks about race and lies. Words matter. So what words do I, do we need to speak about race at FUSD to grow out of white supremacy culture and into a beloved community? Words matter. May we say what needs to be said about race and do what must be done. My life has been entirely unremarkable. I grew up in an upper middle class home in a white neighborhood in Los Angeles. My parents were liberal, non-religious Jews. It was a very comfortable life. I went to public school, then private college. I did what I was supposed to do. I studied hard, got good grades, and followed my parents' footsteps and became a doctor. I was successful in an average way. Until I read the book Waking Up White at FUSD in May of 2017, I thought my comfortable life was a result of my hard work and my family's culture that always placed a high priority on being educated. And then I woke up and learned about my white privilege and understood that the life I took for granted happened because of my white skin, not because of my hard work. I was embarrassed that this awakening came so late in life, but I'm so appreciative that it did come because it changed my life. I still don't understand why wanting to end white supremacy culture became the focus of my life. It's something about how I was raised, my core values of fairness, justice, and equity. Everything about systemic racism felt grossly unfair to me, and I wanted to do everything I could to change it. I made a conscious decision not to wallow in feeling guilty about my white privilege or that it took me almost my whole life to figure it out. Guilt would slow me down and serve no purpose moving forward, so I dismissed it. Instead, I read and I went to workshops and I talked to like-minded friends. I tried to become an activist, 
some of us started a racial justice group at FUSD. The group thrived and still plays an important part in the life of our congregation. Some of us at FUSD decided we wanted to explore the idea of reparations in a more focused way. We met for a year and this led to a whole other avenue of learning for me. I began to think about how I live my life, how I spend my money, what organizations I donate to, where I invest my money. And I began to think about these things differently through a reparations lens. My husband David and I had some serious conversations about our values and how we express those values. We spoke to our adult children about inheritance and how white families passing their inheritance on to their children is one of the worst ways white people perpetuate continued wealth disparities. This part of my journey feels very worthwhile because I feel like it's something tangible that I can do to make a difference in our white supremacy culture. But the story can't end there. There is so much work to do. I still struggle with how to be a good ally. I have to live with the realization that Black, Indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC, see me, a white, older, well-meaning liberal woman, as dangerous. I want them to know I have good intentions, that I'm an ally, but they've been burned by people like me so many times. Besides, it can't be about me. I know from my readings that real allyship means taking on the struggle as your own and centering those who are marginalized. It does not mean getting approval from BIPOC, BIPOC for doing the work, but knowing something and internalizing it so it is real are two different things. So I must continue to push myself to take risks, speak up, stay engaged. I know I can still wake up some days and not feel like focusing on systemic racism that day, but BIPOC folks don't have that luxury. I'm a perfectionist, so I continue to be afraid that I'll say or do something wrong, that I'll embarrass myself. I do make mistakes and it is embarrassing. It is important to apologize, learn from those mistakes and move on. Feeling paralyzed like feeling guilty performs no useful purpose. Better to let those feelings go and do the work. I want to end by acknowledging how grateful I am to FUSD for playing such an important role in my journey. It was here that I first discovered my white privilege. It was here that I made wonderful friends who are committed to learning and teaching about racial justice. It was here that I had the complete support and encouragement of Mike. It is hard to do this work alone. It is wonderful to have colleagues with whom I can be totally honest and who challenge me to keep engaged and move forward. My sincere thanks to them and to you all. Hey everyone. My name is Katherine Wiley, and I'm a member of Boulder Valley Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. Uh, and I have, on occasion, joined First Uni Unitarian Society of Denver and enjoyed that. Um, so thank you for today for inviting my reflection on my, my race journey, uh, as I'm calling it. <clears throat> so um, you could say that, uh, that basically the first crack in my race windshield, if you could call it that, um, occurred when I was 24 years old. I was in graduate school, it was the first day of class, and the subject was the history of African-American education. And my professor, she clicked the on button of, uh, of a recording that she had, and out came the voice of this um, very scratchy uh, old man. And he began talking about his life um, when he was younger, and he was a black sharecropper in the segregated South. 
And he, like many other black people during that time, taught himself to read. Um, and in his story, he said that the consequence of learning how to read was getting his fingers cut off by the white people in his town. Um, and that moment was so powerful for me. It left an impression that, you know, obviously eight years later, I have not forgotten uh, since. Um, it was the first time that I began to understand that uh, that white supremacy um, was was a thing and that it was violent and that it created horrific, horrific um, violence against black people and other people of color in this nation. And uh, definitely the second um, crack in that windshield was a couple of years later um, when uh, Trayvon Benjamin Martin was murdered. Um, you know, he shares the middle name of my white brother, but none of the skin privilege. And I, I saw in him someone who could be my family. Um, and I was so, um, it was the first time where, where I really began to see that uh, black youth in particular um, cannot, cannot live the same life that white youth that my brother could. Um, and I followed the acquittal um, and then other acquittals of so many police officers, many of them white, who have uh, been uh, not been prosecuted um, for for the murder of black people. And because of the history that I was beginning to understand and what I was seeing all around me in the world and, you know, of the last 10 years, I, the through lines were, were so apparent. Um, and so during that same time, I was also in an experience um, unlike nothing else that I had known before, where on a daily basis, I was walking inside of a, a school um, where that was run by white people and treating many of the black children who attended school there terribly. And although on the outside, I was developing a race-conscious, anti-racist identity, Every time I walked into that school building, I felt so overwhelmed um, and incapable of, of being the anti-racist advocate I wanted to be in that space. And um, I stayed silent, uh, and that sat with me um, for a very, very long time because as a white person in a, in, in a privileged position to be inside a school building, where I had access to knowledge about how black children were being treated, staying silent was, was the wrong thing to do. Um, and it took me a long time to finally, uh, to, to finally get the courage to go public with what I knew. Um, and that set me on a next stage of my journey where, uh, that of really of, of the advocate, um, of the activist and using the information I had, I went to any official who would listen to me and, um, and tried to really, uh, write that wrong for me on a deep personal, um, spiritual level. And, uh, you know, that fueled a particular kind of work. I think, um, it was, it was a, a righteous rage work. It was, um, it was a. It was in some ways a vindictive anti-racist work. I was so mad and so, uh, so feeling so, so angry and frustrated and disappointed at these institutions and public officials who, um, even in the face of all the evidence, 
turned away from addressing institutional racism, right? And so that set me, you know, on this next phase where having sort of come from the windshield cracking to um, an experience of being silent in the face of of dehumanization, um, to speaking out about it, and now to a new place where it's something that I'm able to talk about a little bit more openly, publicly, still learning that part. Um, and it's definitely brought um, other other things to my work, like I take more of an anti-racist lens in my teaching now and still figuring that out as well. But um, but I think for me, the coming forward part has has really been the next phase and has ushered in a deeper sense of connection um, to to the complexity uh, and um, it's been a it's been a healing journey as well as a deepening of understanding of how how so many people can witness something horrible happen and not do anything about it and that's a lesson that I'll take with me from my own experience of having been one of those people um, to also seeing all around me the dozens and dozens of people that remain silent. Uh, about things that happen in their workplaces, in their schools, in their institutions. So with that new knowledge, I move forward into wherever this journey goes. benediction today are the words of our newly accepted covenant. I will listen to you. I will make space for you. I will include you. Together, we will be a community of love, respect, and justice. Together, we will learn about white supremacy culture to create an equitable congregation. Together, we will protect the vulnerable. When we fall out of covenant, we will call each other back in. May it be so.